player one, welcome to the Gaming History Club. My name is Gabby. Hello, and I'm JP. As it's time to get cold outside, we at Gaming History Club are going to look at how we managed to stay warm and cozy on the inside. This is how we got our first home video game console. misfortune of being born in a horrendous situation. So, there was a quote by someone called Ralph Henry Bear, which I think is really fitting to start off the episode. Yes, he did have quite a troublesome start, hasn't he? So, who is this Ralph Henry Bear? He's actually the one who brought video games into your houses now, into yes. your homes. He brought it to the television. Many things about video games have quite a quirky, mysterious history, like what was the first 3D game, uh, what was the first video game ever. Yeah. But not this time around. It's very certain who brought to us video games on a TV, and it was Mr. Bear. Mr. Bear, yes, that's true. So, talking about Ralph Henry Bear, um, he was born as Rudolf Heinrich Bear, JP, I know you will butcher my German in this episode. So. Heinrich. Okay. Rudolf okay. Heinrich Bär. Okay, so that, basically. <laughs> I'm just going to go with what JP say because I know I can't say it as good as he would be able to. Yes. So, yeah. he, was, he was born Rudolf Heinrich Bär, but he's officially called Ralf Henry Bär. When we start looking into the story of his life, I think that's why I said that quote was really fitting, that he said he was born in a horrendous situation. So the Bear family was a Jewish family. At age 14, he was expelled from school due to anti-Jewish legislation implemented in Nazi Germany. Fearing increasing persecution and danger, the family moved to the Bronx, New York, in 1938. And I would consider them lucky because they moved just two months before Kristallnacht. Yes. Crystal Knight, named after the amount of shattered glass on the streets following the Crystal Knight. Yeah, so that's basically the night in which the Nazi German paramilitary incarcerated many Jews, destroying many of their homes, synagogues, schools, hospitals, and businesses. After arriving in New York, Bear, now 16-year-old, started working in his cousin's factory, which produced leather manicure kits, for the cosmetics company Avon. Avon? Yeah. Never heard of them. <laughs> Are those the annoying people that come knocking on our door asking me if I want a new pedicure or something? Uh, yeah, sometimes they did, actually, yeah. yeah. Not so much anymore. Not so much anymore, yeah. I remember a lot of them um, during my childhood, though. I don't know how big they are. I always felt like they're a bit of a pyramid scheme because you can work for them, kind of, right? And you just go like door to door selling people more Avon stuff. And then you also get them to work for Avon. And then you get. I a... believe they are. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> I don't want to say it out loud because I'm not too sure in this case. But I believe they are. I'm not sure either. We could be wrong. Avon could be the best company on earth, but we're, we're getting sidetracked. Let's I not know. talk about Avon. <laughs> Avon is not the... Avon is just a tiny little speck in the story of uh, Mr. Bear. Let's continue. <laughs> Let's continue, yes. So, yes, Bear showed an early aptitude for invention and innovating. 
he managed to add a feature to the machinery in the factory to stitch six cases at the same time. Yeah, early genius, yeah. Early genius, yeah. So he's only 16, right? Yeah. And he already started inventing all this efficiency machines, basically. Yeah, and a factory full of like workers who they all had the chance to come up with this idea themselves, yeah. But you know what? Um, in Mr. Bear's own words, like having ideas came very natural to him, he says. I can totally see that from the story of his life, to be honest. So, yeah. Um, because following his brief period at his cousin's factory, in 1940, he began working as a radio and television service technician. And this is where he started a lot of tinkering, I'm guessing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, especially when you think about television, 1940, that was any any type of television was still a very luxury item. Yeah. So thinking about the um, technicalities that you must actually understand and comprehend to service these things. I mean, there isn't many of them around and they are expensive. And yeah. he's able to, yeah, service them. Good on him, right? Good on him, yeah. And his life took a major turn in 1943 when he was drafted into the army and sent to become a combat engineer at Fort Dix, New Jersey. During basic training, he would fix radios, just like he did and write his first technical paper about converting radios from AC to AC-DC operation. Yeah, I think what that actually means is um, if you have a radio that's plugged into the main electrical socket, mm -hmm. uh, if you're able to turn that radio into DC, that means you can now make it work off batteries as well. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, this is like one of the proofs about his early geniuses, I would say. Because even as a soldier, he even crafted radios from German mine detectors for his fellow servicemen to listen to music and radio programming. So he already got all of this turning something into something fun kind of mentality, even from very young age. I'm surprised you can even turn a mine detector into a radio in the first place. Yeah, I'm starting to question how. Yeah. So Bear spent a majority of his time collecting and writing information about different types of American, German, and Italian weapons, particularly how they mechanically functioned and how they were typically used. This is one of his quotes. If I learned anything from the army, it was about being able to get things done, no matter how tough the assignment, and it served me later in life. Having left the army in 1946, Bear briefly worked for three months at Emerson Radio, where he fixed non-functioning radio and television sets that came off of the production line. But Bear very quickly began to want more, and he was looking now to make use of his GI Bill, which is basically a benefit you get from the army to do studies in college or university. Unfortunately, he had quite a tough time um, because many veterans were trying to make use of this GI Bill. So they will have had a lot of applicants at colleges and universities. So he was looking around for quite a while until he finally got lucky. Following an interview, his luck changed and he attended the American Television Institute of Technology in Chicago. This is where he earned his bachelor's degree in television engineering in 1949. This degree was one of the first of its kind as TVs were in the midst of becoming more popular consumer products. To put that in perspective, between 1950 and 1955, TV sales rose from just 3.1 million units 
to an estimated 32 million units. Oh, tenfold in five years. Wow. Yeah. yeah. The 50s is where TVs really started to becoming a normal part of a normal household in America, at least. At the Institute, Bear had the opportunity to work with very influential inventors, including Lee DeForest, who was a pioneer and inventor in vacuum tubes and radio technology. Lee DeForest actually started to help usher in the electronics age, and he led the development later of talking motion pictures. Talking motion pictures. Yeah, talkies, as they as they called it back then, yes, yeah, so uh, not silent movies. Following his graduation in 1949, he took an engineering job with Wappler Inc., a small electromedical equipment firm where he built medical machines such as muscle toning, depilation and DC galvanic equipment to treat muscles. His uh, genius just knows no bounds, and I think this is like the uh, key ingredient for genius, isn't it? Really, that you're really good at like loads of different things yeah, in a way. That's true. Yeah, he soon left to work for the Laurel Electronics Corporation, though, and he became a senior engineer there in 1950. Even though Laurel was a defense contractor focused on the development and production of military equipment, for some reason Bear was commissioned with building a luxury large-screen television set there. It's probably a defense mechanism? <laughs> a defense mechanism. Luxury TV. Oh, okay. <laughs> the enemies will be distracted by this 55-inch... By all the talkies. Yes, yeah. the talkies. It was during his time at Laurel in 1951 that he began considering other possibilities that TVs could have and he suggested including a game component in the TVs that they were building. His idea was rejected by Laurel. He was told to continue with the luxury TV sets as planned, but they didn't take off. Bear requested a raise and after being unsuccessful, simply decided to leave the business. Bear would say, When you build television sets, you have all this equipment and you would have all these lines and squares on the screen to test it. So it occurred to me that it might be fun for people to control the lines and squares on the screen. So in the following year, in 1952, uh, Baird took a job as chief engineer for a company called Transitron, which developed military-grade equipment. He filed two patents during this time for his development of a transmitter there was half the size and weight of existing models. He married Dana Winston in 1952, a marriage that would last until Dana's passing in 2006. Shortly after their first son, James, was born, the family moved to Manchester, New Hampshire. Not England. Luckily. No, unfortunately not. No, I would say luckily. No, because we could have totally visited the family and asked him about their daddy. <laughs> no way. But I feel like... The that is a better place in New Hampshire. Yeah, probably is. Yeah. <laughs> so there he briefly worked for a machine tool manufacturing company, but unsatisfied with the work there, he found himself a job with Sanders Associates, a defense contracting firm in 1956. He would stay with Sanders until his retirement in 1987. So if you remember, we mentioned this on our first ever episode about arcade, how war actually pushed research and development in the background. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of funding usually go to that. Yeah. And Bear actually found himself in a similar situation. 
Throughout his career, Baer predominantly worked for private military defense companies as a result of rising federal financial allocations for national defense spend during the Cold War period. Many research and development as well as manufacturing firms emerged and grew during this time to capitalize on new business opportunities in the military defense industry. This is actually a really good opportunity for engineers like Bear, because between 46 and 69, the military spent an estimated $1 trillion on defense, giving the 50 largest corporations in the U.S. over half of the prime military contracts annually, and thus initiating what has been called the military-industrial complex. The military-industrial complex, yeah. So it's not just the Second World War by itself. Also, the Cold War had a lot of funding behind it from America. Absolutely, yeah. I would say all wars actually have that effect in the background because they are trying to advance. So it's just a natural At a rapid pace, yeah. Yeah. Very quickly, yeah. Exactly. So Bear worked on a number of electronic machines with military defense purposes. This includes devices for use in covert operations that monitored Soviet transmission. It just proves more and more of his multi-skilled engineering level, in my honest opinion. Yeah, absolutely. From things I've read uh, that he said as well, um, he considers like uh, what he did with gaming to be just, just one of the many things that he actually did. There was a quote from where he literally says, uh, I've been making things since Pluto was a pup. I don't want to put him on the same level as like perhaps Da Vinci, but you could also imagine Da Vinci saying, I am not just a painter. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's true. And I think Bear also very much sees himself in a similar light where he is an inventor and an innovator first and foremost, not a video game developer. In 1958, he became a division manager and a chief engineer at Sanders, and he submitted numerous patents during his time at the company. Some of his patents include an indicator announcing system, a multi-layer core memory process, a parachute deriving system, and a memory device. I feel like this is really varied. (laughs) Sounds really mysterious, doesn't it? A memory device. That could be all kinds of things, yeah. What memory device? Did he invent the USB stick? Like, secretly, very early, just for the military. Like, yo, here's a quick, cheeky two kilobytes for you to use out in the field, (laughs) soldier. Two kilobytes would have been... Massive. 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 Huge. (laughs) So along with all of these advances, Bear continued to consider alternative purposes for television sets and the incorporation of an interactive game function during his off hours. He's very fixated on this idea, working (laughs) with television. He is not letting this go. He is not letting this go. And thank God for that, though, to be honest. Yes. Because even though his game idea had been previously rejected at Laurel in 1951, he decided to go for it to the Sanders board of directors after outlining his design for interactive television gameplay on home television sets in 1966. So it took him 15 years to be able to present it again. We could have had TV video games much earlier if it wasn't for Laurel just not being down with its vision. I know. And is it just me or I feel like 
Bear actually had the idea of Pong earlier because he did say about playing with the lines on the TV screen. Yeah, this is true, but ah, uh, this would take such deep research because obviously we had um, Mr. Higginbotham, right? Yeah. Also in the 50s doing the same thing. That's true, mm. on a different platform, but yeah. So Mr. Bass, looking at it from a perspective of when he tests TV screens, he sees, you know, lines and dots and maybe he can turn that into a game and... Um, Higginbotham is looking at it on an oscilloscope level yes. like I can also do things here and it, the idea for a Pong-like game might just be naturally one of the first ideas you might have mm -hmm. and so they may have just been independently developed if yeah, that makes sense of course 100% and for player ones who listen to this episode who's questioning who's Mr. Higginbotham Go back to our arcade episodes and make sure you listen to that. Absolutely. So Bear, comparing himself to an artist, refused to stop perusing his passion for inventing and continued to promote his gaming ideas. In his 1966 disclosure document, um, this is basically his first design concept, he even lists games that he thought would be possible to play on television sets back then. The games including action, board, artistic, instructional, chance, card, and sports games. So basically, games as we know how they are today as well. The ideas came flooding in. Yeah, exactly. And as a division manager, he had various supervisory responsibilities and thus relied on his engineering team. So he had Bill Harrison and Bill Rush two engineers who assisted him during this time. Together, the team would create the first television video game console that started the multi-billion dollar industry that we have today. Yes. So this is one of his quotes. It's like I'm basically an artist, no different than a painter who sits there and loves what he does. So let's rewind just a tiny bit before he went to the board at Sanders. So... He created his first experimental unit in secret, in a secret room with one of his technicians, Bob Tremblay. I love this. I know, yeah. I love it. Secretly making video games in the big military company. Oh, yeah. it, there needs to be a movie about this. Bear's original design used vacuum tubes instead of the newly emerging transistors or early more complex circuits used for sophisticated military software, as these were just too expensive to be used in consumer products yet at the time. The unit was able to place two dots on a TV, which could be manipulated and moved around the screen. He demonstrated the experimental unit to the corporate director of research and development at Sanders in December of 1966. He very hesitantly granted Bear $2,000 for research and $500 for materials, which in total would amount to $24,000 in today's money. What I really love about this is that he spin his idea by calling it gaming rather than a toy, since gaming was actually a word and a term that was used in the military quite regularly. Ralph would say, people thought I was wasting my time and the company's money, for that matter. So let's talk a little bit about the prototypes, right? So by August 1967, Bear and Bill Harrison completed a more focused prototype machine with fewer components. 
but they found that to even come near to Bear's initial price target of 25 US dollars, which would have been around $220 now, the console would require so much to be excluded that the resulting product would not be very enjoyable. Bear additionally felt that he was not proving super good at designing fun games for the system. To make up for this, he formally added Bill Rush, who had helped him come up with the initial games for the console, to the project. Though Bear and the other Bill uh, found Rush difficult to work with, he soon proved his value to the team by coming up with a way to display a third console-controlled spot on the screen in addition to the previous two player-controlled ones. And this led him to propose the development of a ping-pong game, which they would call Tennis for Two. So this is where it all came from. Yeah, it was the third console-controlled spot on the screen because you, you need a spot for that the that a computer moves around, right? The ball. The ball, yeah, yeah. exactly. By November, the team now on their fourth prototype machine had a ping-pong game, a chasing game, a light gun game, and three different types of controllers. Joysticks for the chase game, a rifle for the light gun game, and a free-dial controller for the ping-pong game. It was decided to sell the rights to produce the console, as Sanders was not in the business of making and selling commercial electronics. In total, they made seven prototypes, the seventh of which was called the Brown Box. Not the best name uh, in hindsight, the brown no. box, but if you look at pictures of the brown box, it, it is legit a brown box. So, yeah. fair enough. That's true. In 1971, Sanders Associates looked for buyers to license the brown box too. The license would eventually go to the Magnavox company. And during testing, the Magnavox company called it the Skill O Vision before being branded the Magnavox Odyssey for release. So, yeah, the the first video game home console, the Magnavox Odyssey. I'm happy they're not calling it the brown box, to be honest. Or the Skillo Vision, for I that know. matter. I think anything with an O in the middle is, should not be allowed, <laughs> if I'm being quite frank. <laughs> Only in the middle, so Jello is approved, yes? Well, that's at the end, that's that's fine, but yeah. like, it just sounds so quirky, like the Flippo Flapper or something, or like the... Hat O fitter or something. You just, okay. just don't do it. Don't put an O in the middle of two words, please. So Magnavox, being Magnavox, not going to just take the system and then release it as is. So they made certain changes to the console. The system of changing games was changed from selecting the game with a dial to separate game cards that modified the console's circuitry when plugged into the console. So all of those cards, it looked like cartridges, but they're not actually game cartridges. They're plugged into the console to change the circuitry of the console, which will make the system to work differently. Yeah, so the end result of the Magnavox Odyssey is to produce, you know, three lines and a dot on the screen. And that's all it can do. There is no games there as mm -hmm. such. It is all... Kind of left up to the imagination yep. uh, at the end of the day. So those cards would change um, characteristics of how the lines and the dot interact with each other. Mm -hmm. The games went on the card. They changed the console itself. And that's why if you ever want to know what the first home video game console was that had uh, interchangeable cartridges, this is the reason why the Magnavox Odyssey is not that, basically. Yeah. 
because they are not game cartridges. No. Mm. So it was also a black and white only system as color TVs were still a luxury item. Magnavox felt it would have added unnecessary expense to the console. The unit was made up of a spaceship-looking console, only the dial-style controllers were used, each consisting of a rectangular box with three dials and a reset button at the center. I love the reset button because it will keep resetting the computer. Dot. Yeah, they could have just called it a cheating button, couldn't yeah, they really? that's true. I find it really interesting how they kept the rectangular box with three dials so that Dials controller. If, yeah. if you remember, I mentioned they had three different controllers. They had this one, the dials. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that was just meant for, for the tennis game, tennis for two or pong. Um, but they, they also had a joystick one. Yeah. So it's it seems really annoying that they didn't go with the joystick one, I guess, is what yeah, I'm trying to say. Because yeah, because the dial one looked really awkward to hold as well. For player ones out there who don't actually know how Magnavox Odyssey look like, Please do Google them and you will understand what I'm talking about, mm. why it's awkward to hold. Especially the controller. Imagine mm -hmm. like holding a rectangular box like on the left and right side with your hands and you've got dials on each side and you can just turn them. And I think on a left hand dial, mm -hmm. there's a smaller dial on top of that one as well. So it was very awkward. It was it was very strange controller, if I'm being honest. But the reason why, usually I'd be like, yeah, well, it's the first video game home console ever made. Give it some slack. But the fact is that they made joysticks. Yeah. And they didn't use them. Magnavox didn't choose to use the joysticks in the end product. And we thought Defender was hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Try playing Defender with that controller. Yes. Um, but yeah, talking about the controller, the light gun game would be sold separately and not, um, not part of the set basically. The console was accompanied by physical items to facilitate the rough graphics by today's standard. Very rough. Very rough, yes. Um, but it's fair enough. It was 1970s after all. And they also had plastic overlays that would need to be stuck to the TVs as the console was only able to portray the lines and squares, as we mentioned before. So that's where the imagination is playing part here. All of the overlays. Yeah. So Magnavox added paper money, playing cards, and poker chips to the console to go along with the plastic overlays that supposed to enhance the primitive visuals. The new additions helped raise the price of the console to almost a hundred US dollar. That's basically equivalent to about seven hundred dollar in nowadays money. And that upset Bear, because if you remember, Bear wanted the console to cost around $25. So he was not happy with the board game additions, which he felt were pointless add-ons that would go unused by players as well. Which undoubtedly, yes, they did go unused by players, as, as far as I can tell from having seen reviews about the Odyssey and how people feel about it nowadays. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, the game themselves were incredibly primitive, so to say. And by today's standard, apart from Tennis for Two and Shooting Gallery, the shooting game that they have accompanied by the light gun, um, would barely be acknowledged as video games due to their reliance on physical objects to facilitate the gameplay itself. Yeah, so let's give some examples, I guess, of what some of these games actually were, apart from Tennis for Two and the light gun game. So yeah, one of the game 
would have the players draw a physical card with the name of a US state on it and raise their controlled lines on the TV to that particular state on the plastic overlay. Yeah, so uh, again, like, where's the video game here? Yeah, you're just, you're just controlling. It's like uh, having one of the mouse pointers, you know, yeah, in presentations. It, yeah, that, that's not a video game. Um, but uh, again, I feel like I can make fun of it now after realizing that, like, this is not the vision that these guys had when they made uh, that's true. Yeah. the brown box, not the Magnavox Odyssey. Yeah, they, they didn't have this kind of stuff in mind. They were doing, you know, tennis for two. And yeah, that is a that is a video game. And yeah, there was also another game that similarly had players race to different parts of human bodies. And it worked the same way. Like you draw a physical card and go to the plastic overlay. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. So it would say rest and you have to like chase to the rest. So there was a boy and a girl mm-hmm. on the plastic overlay. And what I think the card would say like boys rest to so go to the boys wrist and then girls foot and you go girls foot it, it should be worth mentioning as well like every single game for the Magnavox Odyssey was a two-player game as well yeah. so there, there was no single player mode here another example is roulette where a player was to close their eyes and randomly turn the dials on the controller and hope the line landed on a number to be fair a lot of the time the line would just go off screen <laughs> yeah Oh, what number is this? Huh? Huh? It's just gone. So, yeah, yeah um, fair to say that the design was relatively primitive. Yeah. Magnavox produced around 130,000 units in the first year and sold around 69,000 units. By most accounts, this was not a commercial success. According to Bear, Magnavox limited their sales by pricing the consoles too high and by only selling in their own retail stores. Ah, so here we go. Magnavox sold the product for $100 instead of Bear's recommended $19.95. Yeah, I have a feeling if they sold it for $19.95, it would have been a heck of a lot more popular. Yeah, Yeah. because I would buy that for $19.95, but I wouldn't pay $100 for that. Yeah, especially if you consider inflation, that's like, I, I guess, roughly times seven. So, so like, that's $140 40, dollars yeah. now. You might just think about it for, like, a really novel thing, and you can play what you would consider to be Pong at home, right? Yes. Yeah. You might think about it. Yeah. Nah, mm. Not for $100. No, I don't think so. Yeah, no. that's true. And I think Magnavox made it worse with the false impression that the system would only work on Magnavox TV sets. Right, because they were only selling them at their own retail stores yes. along with the Magnavox TV sets. So, yeah. yeah. Although it actually will work in any TV. But let me tell you, Magnavox did manage to make money from this enterprise that they had going on. And let me tell you how they were making money with this enterprise. Not by selling, I'm guessing. (laughs) No, they were suing companies left, right and center because in the eyes of Magnavox and also the law, every game that had a Pong type of game was actually infringing on their patents for the game Tennis for Two. So they were suing a lot of companies. Very famously, they they were suing Atari. At this time, you had a lot of uh, Pong consoles. So these were consoles that could only play Pong, Mm -hmm. right? They were suing them as well. The very last one of these lawsuits was actually um, 
as as recent as 1998. That's how long this has been going on for you. And um, the last lawsuit was against two arcade manufacturers, Data East and Taito. In the end, it is estimated that Magnavox and Sanders collected $100 million from these lawsuits. And let's compare that to how much they were making from selling their own console, which was $71 million. That's unbelievable. They made more from suing people. Yeah. I think uh, I want to highlight this personally very highly that uh, Bear received a lot of criticism for this as well, obviously, from the gaming community at the time. But we need to keep in mind, however, uh, the patents were not in his name. They were in Sanders and they were licensed to Magnavox. So they were getting all the royalties from sales and legal disputes. He was not making any money from these lawsuits, and I don't think he particularly cared either about the lawsuits. Yeah, or particularly happy about them, because he's just the guy who wants to make fun games. Yeah, and especially when you think of all the changes they made to his console as well that he wasn't happy with, uh, I don't think he deserves any criticism. So for all the things that you know we make poke fun at Magnavox for... Bear does not deserve any of those criticisms at all. Like, he's he's really the angel here uh, in all of this. Absolutely. Nevertheless, Magnavox Odyssey transformed the TV's function from being a purely passive object to an interactive device. And in uh, Mr. Bear's own words, an entire generation of talented people, engineers, artists, scriptwriters, musicians, programmers, have been busy creating a whole new art form for us. The name of this game is Interactivity. So what happened to Bear afterwards? Well, throughout his life, Bear remained a passionate inventor of electronic games and toys. His invention received international acclaim and afforded him visits back to Germany later in life. He visited Germany for the first time in 2006, which... That's actually the same time that uh, sadly Dina, his wife, passed away. So um, I wonder if he did that afterwards. Maybe he needed a little bit of soul-searching kind of thing. I don't know, but I have noticed it's the same year. But he went back to Germany and he visited the Computerspielemuseum in Berlin, which is the Computer Games Museum. It is called Computer Games Museum, but it's not computer games. It's all video games. Yeah. It's it's what they call themselves, the Computer Games Museum. I've actually been there. It's a fantastic place. And he financially sponsored uh, the museum. He gave an interview there and he left them, well, he donated them one of his original brown boxes. Nice. In the US, Bear received numerous prestigious awards. And let me tell you, there is a heck of a lot of them. But I'm just going to wrap it up with the most prestigious one that he received in 2004 from President Bush, crediting him as a leading innovator. He was presented with the National Medal of Technology and Innovation, and it is the highest honor the United States can confer to a U.S. citizen for achievements related to technological process. And he truly deserved it. Oh, yeah. Mm. Bear passed away on December 6th, 2014. And on May the 10th, 2019, a statue was placed in Bear's honor in Arms Park in Manchester, New Hampshire. The area of the park around the memorial was renamed as Bear Square. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, Player One, and arrived safely in the year 2024. Welcome! New episodes of Gaming History Club are released every second Wednesday, so make sure you subscribe and follow us on our social media. Say hi to us by visiting our website, 
gaminghistory.club and let us know what topics you'd like to hear or just share your favorite video game stories with us. Yeah, or let us know if you would have bought the Magnavox Odyssey at $100 back then, which would have been $700 in today's money. Oh, that's a lot. Mm. Come back in a couple of weeks when Gaming History Club gets gory. See ya.